and welcome to this week's Key Voices, Conversations with Folk in and Around Education. I am Caroline Doherty. As ever, thank you to all the school staff listening. The work you do has never been more important to the communities you serve. Before we begin, our quick reminder as ever that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the views of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Right, with that out of the way, I am delighted to introduce our two guests uh, this week. We are talking to John Thompson, head teacher at Huntingdon School in York, and Johnny Utley, CEO of the Education Alliance, which is a mixed phase trust in East Yorkshire. Uh, and we're talking about John and Johnny's book, Putting Staff First, amongst other things. So welcome to you both. Hi. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm really struck that, that you're a, a local authority head teacher and a trust CEO. So in theory, you know, you shouldn't even be friends, let alone write a book together. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you tell me a bit more about how your collaboration came about, and why you think most so much time gets wasted arguing about school structures? <laughs> um, if, I, if I begin, Johnny was, was head of sixth form at Huntington whilst I was head there, and I remember the day where he said he's applying for a job with deputy over in East Riding, um, and I, I think I probably said to you, Johnny. You have what you want, but you'll more than likely get it. <laughs> he got it. Um, and it was just great, because I think if I think about what leadership is in schools and what leadership is generally, I think someone says uh, the best measure of leadership is the leadership you develop in others. So it's, it's delighted to see Johnny go from strength to strength. And, and I think over the years, it's 10 years since the Academies Act now, and over the years, we've got less and less worried about structures. You know, we're, we're kind of designation blind, really. I think we have a very um, similar philosophy of education. It's not identical. Um, we know what good teaching and learning looks like. And we've always been a brilliant teacher. Um, and I think all those things coincided. And when we started, you know, we've obviously kept in touch. Um, Johnny, we both still live in York. And um, when I was thinking about a book, a couple of years ago, it's a follow-up to the book I wrote called, really the follow-up to the book I wrote in 2015 called Love Over Fear, um, I said to Johnny, you know, I think Johnny's been um, growing his reputation across the, across the country in education circles, I thought it was a great opportunity to co-write a book, um, because Johnny was doing some great stuff over in his writing that I really liked about around ethical leadership, and the stuff that I was doing and the stuff that Johnny's doing was a brilliant fit. So there seemed no reason to, um, to work together and this book. Yeah, I mean, I, I like trying to view Johnny. Certainly, um, it's good to go back a few years um, and to think how we, we started together. Um, my first real contact with John was... Um, I was already at Huntington. He'd been there as a deputy and then he left to become head at Lady Lumley's and he came back as the head teacher of Huntington. And I always remember the first um, September training day um, and John stood at the front and talked about the results that the school had got. And it was the first time in my whole career. 
career that are ahead of them and not made a comparison with other schools. Mm. Um, and that was very different because probably it was different to where the school had been. Um, and it was the first time really in my career that it got me thinking that there may be a different way of leading schools. Because So it, it felt as though a particular approach had developed in education that was all about competition. Um, and at times that could tip into doing other schools down. Um, and it was the first time I actually considered that there may be a different way of doing things. And as I say, we worked together. Um, I moved to uh, South Hunsley. South Hunsley happened to be an academy. Um, I'd been part of the discussions before I left about the benefits of academy system, the benefits of remaining in the maintained sector. And we took a very pragmatic approach um, at, at Huntington when the decision was made to stay with the local authority. It was never a um, it was never an ideological decision. And I think the thing about John and I both is we've always had a very nuanced view of the world and understood that polarisation doesn't doesn't really help anyone. Um, and the last bit I'd say I think the you know why there has been this kind of heat of debate. I think for me, it's because schools have been a, a proxy war in a in a politicised debate. So academies have become shorthand for one view of education, one political viewpoint, and um, maintain schools have become a, a, um, the same for the other side. And actually, the reality of all of it is there's good leadership in maintain schools and there's good leadership in the academy sector. Um, and there's obviously the opposite in both as well. I think, Caroline, just to add to that, in terms of the fact what, how nonsensical the polarisation is, I um. The, the last 10 weeks has seen schools in York more more close together than ever before. And I chair the schools and academies board. Um, so that, that's representative of every school in New York and it's designation blind. And all we're obsessed about is improving the outcomes for young people in the city. And the level of cooperation between the academies and, and maintain schools, the local authority maintain schools, has been phenomenal. We've proven that actually all this. Um, kind of polar opposite stuff, and, and, and the you're either one or the other. It's just nonsense. And um, we had the Secretary of State up a couple of years ago um, to Huntington to visit, and I invited the local authority and um, Andy Daly from Archbishop of Holgate's Pathfinder Trust um, to meet. And he couldn't believe. He said he either gets invited to meet um, with local authority schools or academy trust, but never the two together. And I think it's really important that you just show that leadership and that you, you make sure you understand exactly what you're there for and that's to provide a great education no matter, no matter what the designation of the school. And, and I think in, in hearing you talk there and thinking about the theme of the book, you, you, you realise that actually the teaching and learning and management of the staff exists at the centre, um, achieving those outcomes for pupils, and a lot of the other stuff that gets caught up in that wider conversation is the stuff that sits around that um, and isn't actually the core, core business of, of, of schools. Um, so that's um, interesting to, to see that you've had a, a lo long relationship and, and worked together as well. And coming on to your, to your title, Putting Staff First, um, that might seem a controversial uh, idea to some people. What what barriers exist, do you think, to, that sort of prevent schools putting their staff first? Um, yeah, I think, I, I think there's a couple of things, really. I think 
and it can be one of one of these or it can be both and i think one of them is around fear and anxiety that's in the in the system uh, when you talk to school leaders a lot of the conversations that you, that you have are about what are they worried about and a lot of that comes back to the external accountability system the high stakes not necessarily the inspection system but the, the high stakes that are around the inspection judgment um, and I think that that has that has encouraged um, school leaders at times to make decisions which are about developing systems for external accountability rather than for what is in the best interest of that school the other bit of it I think is that that's become so prevalent um, that it became at one point almost the prevailing the prevailing model. Um, you know, so if you think about secondary schools five six years ago, huge numbers of data drops, um, constant cycles of, of of lesson drop-ins with with checklists, um, one-off lesson observations, all of the things that are when you talk to staff they're really concerned about and they find really difficult. Um, and actually, for, for us, that ability to step back and look at why we're doing things is at the heart of putting staff first because when you when you cut through all of that and you ask the question in schools why do we do anything if it isn't about improving the performance of staff and the um, then it shouldn't really be there um, the last bit of it for me is that the, the governors and leaders need to be absolutely aligned um, so where schools have successfully developed a staff first approach the leadership team and the governance and the governors understand the importance of that um, and are aligned around that and sometimes again in some schools there's been a mismatch between the value set of the governors and the value set of the of the leadership team and I think getting those aligned is, is, is really important if we are to overcome these these problems I think, I think, Caroline, <laughs> following on from what Johnny said, it's easy to, it's easy to mis misinterpret what we're saying. Um, it sounds like it's a staff first down to the students. The reason it's called putting staff first is because that is the best thing for the students. The best mm. thing for students is a highly motivated, well-trained, healthy, happy staff who rock up every day and teach really good lessons. That's the best thing because you're only going to get that if you put staff first, by putting staff first, you're putting students first, the needs of the students, which is high quality teaching. I was talking today, we talk about um, the teachers and coming back in, in a couple of weeks' time, and we were debating about whether we need to train people to do live Zoom lessons and all that kind of stuff and get involved with the unions. And the EF research says quite clearly, it doesn't matter what mode of teaching you're using, online, face-to-face, -face, in the classroom, um, it's the quality of the teachers that matters. Right? The quality of the teaching might be just as bad live in the, as it is online, and you can see that. Or it might be brilliant live and brilliant online, and the level, of, you know, uh, and the quality of the learning that goes on is equally good. It all depends on the quality of the teachers. So, if that's true, surely you must invest. All your, all your attention in improving the quality of the most important resource. It's just complete logical sense to me. Yeah, exactly. And I think what, what comes across very, very clearly as well is 
um, that, that those staff will be motivated and able to imp constantly improve their teaching in, in that environment. Um, and uh, yet that seems to me a kind of critical, critical point as, as well. Because I say, I think my job as, as a school leader is to create the culture for growth, um, create the culture for growth for staff and for students. And if you can do that, if you make sure that staff learning is, is valued actually more than student learning, that's the, only, that's the best thing in all improve student learning is, is teacher learning. And it's so easy to ignore it and so easy not to privilege it. Yes, and I'd, I'd like to come on to, to ask you, John, a bit about those four essentials of being a teacher that you describe in, in the book. It would be really great if you could talk us through those and, and, and explain how you've made the time and space in, in your schools to allow teachers to get on with the job. Well, um, <laughs> I think what, what, I, what I say in the book, um, the four essentials of being a teacher in a state school today is subject knowledge, the ability to forge good working relationships with students, resilience and the acceptance of a professional obligation to improve your practice, right? All those are completely interlinked. Um, I go back a long way, actually, Carol. I go back when I was a deputy and I was at Nottingham at the National College in a, in a lecture theatre and a bloke called Tom Bentley, um, who was working for Demos at the time, I think. He's still around. He's still he's a great thinker on education. And he said... Once you understand what your core purpose is, you must change your structures to accommodate your core purpose rather than contort your core purpose around your existing structures. And that's really, really important. I know that, you can tell. I know that phrase mm -hmm. really often. Um, but he, uh, I heard him say it over 20 years ago. And it really put a chord with me. What it really, really gets at, if you think the quality of teaching and learning and improving the quality of teaching and learning is the key thing for you to do, in your school, which I think, I don't know what else is a key thing for you. I don't know what else is more important for people than doing that, right? Then you change the structures of your school to accommodate that. So, like, like many schools now, our students go, a decade ago, we decided to send our students home early every other Monday. Um, and that created two hours of training time every other week. So there's 38 hours of training. On top of that, we have um, disaggregated training days. All those training days are really dedicated um, to working departments as far as we possibly can. We don't waste um, time doing, doing stuff that's irrelevant. All our performance management processes, we call performance management performance development, they're all geared around improving the quality of teaching. They're not punitive, right? You're not going to get people improving their practice if there's a fear about trying something out and it failing and then not getting a pay rise or failing their performance management. So performance development, we call it. Um, we, uh, we only have one objective. I was talking with Richard Sheriff, who um, the CEO of Red Kite and was past president of our school um, a few weeks ago, just before we um, started scores uh, in my office. We were chatting through... Um, performance management, and I said, well, we only have, we only have one objective, Richard, and, and that's uh, to do an inquiry question, which is research-based, and it doesn't matter if the intervention you're trying, what, what matters is, is that you evaluate it properly and implement it properly. And he, he couldn't believe 
we couldn't kind of compute that we only have one objective in performance management, and it was all about improving teaching. Um, almost the logic of it was just too much. Um, and he went away trying to work out how on earth we did that, but it worked. Governors mm-hmm. understand the logic of it. Um, and uh, what I'm doing there is creating the space. I don't, there's nothing I want my staff to do, my teachers to do, including me, because I do the same thing. I do my own inquiry questions every year in my practice. I want anybody to do anything that doesn't coherently add to improving the quality of teaching and learning. Um, we also, when we counted it up with all the different things, hours that we snatch here, there, and everywhere, this year, for instance, if we'd had a proper year, um, the teachers 71 hours of ring-fenced time to improve their practice. Um, you cannot just wish your staff to get better. You have to change the structures to allow them to do it. Um, to, to grow their subject knowledge, to, to allow them how to understand how to use behaviour management to improve working relationships, how to reduce the staff. We have, we've had a couple of sessions about staff resilience and a bit of a, a woman who came in who did some work on stoicism and sort of thinking through the difficulties about getting things in perspective um, and then also that, that professional obligation to get better. When I interview, I begin by saying that if, if you don't, if you think you've got, you've done the job, you've got it now, then you think you're a great teacher, this isn't the place for you. Um, you have to accept the professional obligation to get better. So people know what they're after. Mm. Well, they know what they come here. I think the final thing I want to say about it is the practice that we have, we've been really working on evidence-informed practice, not evidence-based, but evidence-informed, where you're taking what the evidence says, you're, it's facilitated for you, you're supported, you're learning about how to evaluate the evidence to improve your practice. What it does is make the job more intellectually interesting, right? I think that's really important. Andreas Schleicher, September 2017 in TS, so the difference between the job in England and the job in Finland isn't the money or anything like that. It's that in Finland, it's an intellectually interesting job. And what we've been able to do at Huntington is make teaching an intellectually interesting job. And that's why um, on the 13th of March this year, we were fully staffed in September. Um, and I've had, I haven't had to do any of those remote interviews in the last few weeks because we were fully staffed. Because people want to come and work at a place where it's intellectually interesting to work. Great stuff. Yeah, I, I, I found the, um, the, 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 the section on the inquiry questions really, really fascinating to see the kind of work that, that people had done, but also to see how, how clear, logical, manageable it, it was when I think it can often feel quite difficult for staff to, to engage in research while doing the job because it's, research seems like this whole separate thing that lives somewhere else. Um, yes. And you can really see it living and breathing at your school. And, and, and it's completely coherent. It's completely integral to the job they're doing. It's like an accepted part of the job rather than a bolt-on. Um, uh, so, so it's something, some flavour of the month we think we ought to try out. Uh, Johnny, is there anything that you'd like to add on any of that? No, I think, I think the um, Huntington was clearly... Um, one of the first schools to start thinking in these terms. In our trust, our approach is very similar, um, but we're, we're a couple of years behind um, where Huntington are. Um, but that, that key principle about 
focusing everything that you've got on teacher improvement is what sits at the heart of our performance development as well. One of the things that we talk about in the book, <clears throat> John and I have talked about a lot, is one of the fundamental roles of a leader in a school is to re remove barriers. Anything that gets in the way of a teacher teaching and getting better at teaching needs to go. Um, and the old conventional performance management systems are one of the biggest barriers that I've been part of. That I've, you know, I've run them, I've done them, I've rewritten them. Um, but it's it's both liberating um, and quite inspiring when you talk to staff and say, actually, we we're going to get rid of the nonsense and we're going to focus on the thing that really matters. And the thing that really matters, as John said, is the quality of the teacher and providing the conditions um, for them to do everything that they can to be as good as they can at what they do. Great stuff. And as you were saying there, removing barriers uh, to, to people doing the job. And I know um, you've done quite a lot about reducing staff workload at your your trust, Johnny. Can you tell you tell us a bit about that and share any advice that you'd give other schools and trusts who are attempting to do the same thing? Yeah, I, the first piece of advice I'd give is to is to understand and recognise the absolute importance of this and to take take the issue really, really seriously. Um, I think we were, we were at a point in the system um, where for a teacher to say that they were concerned about their workload um, had sort of connotations that maybe they were lazy or they weren't up to the job or whatever. We had a, you know, a culture in, in schools nationally where talking about work, workload was seen as some kind of weakness. Now, fortunately, um, that's changed a lot was having really honest conversations, engaging with the unions. We sit across two local authorities, so I meet half-termly with the county reps for Hull and East Riding for all of the teaching unions and the non-teaching unions. And that face-to-face -face, um, conversation that we've had going for about three years now has been absolutely crucial to this. So what we did is we started by listening. We said, right, we know that nationally there are concerns here. We know the union positions on this. Put everything that you want us to look at on the table and they talked about emails, they talked about um, written lesson plans, they talked about mock stents and a whole range of other things, marking and feedback policies and so on. And the vast, vast majority of them are really simple to, to sort. And the way that you sort them is you apply the common sense test. Um, and I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example. We, we all know that emails are the bane of a lot of teachers' lives. And I think Certainly in the last few weeks, everybody's saying it's a nightmare now we're all working remotely because the, the traffic's just mm. gone up exponentially. Um, but there's some, there's some really seemingly innovative solutions to that. And I think a, a school can is at risk of jumping into something without thinking it through. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that the, the unions talked about was the idea of turning off the, um, the email system at 5 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock at night. Um, now it sounds quite a, an alluring idea because the idea then is that you, you know, you're off duty, you can't be got at on an evening. When you actually sit down and talk that through and you think through the implications and you think through the potential intended consequences, one of the biggest un unintended consequences of a system like that um, is I have no problem at all if a teacher wants to leave school at 3.30 when the bell goes, pick up the kids, go home, do tea do CBBs, do the bath, put them to bed, and then make the decision to do some work at eight o'clock at night. If I 
turn the email system off at five o'clock, I'm encouraging them to stay in school. Mm. Uh, so I'm taking them away from their family, however well-intentioned that is, and it is well-intentioned, it doesn't have the, the impact and the effect. But if you sit down and talk to people and ask them what they want, what our staff, all our staff wanted was for us to develop a culture and an understanding that there was no expectation that they respond to emails outside, um, outside school time. It was really that simple. Um, there's technical solutions about, you know, banning all staff emails and these kind of things, but none of that works unless there's an absolute honest commitment to it. Um, so it's actually quite straightforward to address those. But when, when we went back in, I think we surprised the unions because I said, is this actually the height of your ambition? Is this actually all that you want? Don't you want more? Mm. Um, and then when we talked about that, we said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to go right through the organisation, we're going to go right through our systems, and we're going to apply a kind of common sense test or a why do we do it test to everything that's there. And if it doesn't stand up to that, it needs to go. Um, so we actually introduced a, a formal two-term um, system of abandonment, where basically we went through and we got rid of things and we stopped doing things. Um, now, I would caution here, because just as new initiatives or new developments should be based on evidence, so should abandonment. There's a bonus, we'll get rid of it. Um, but actually, it's, you've, got to, you've got to apply a system um, and an approach that says, can I, how do I know that this is working? How do I know it's having the effect that we want it to have? By doing that, you can strip all sorts of things out because I would argue, and we argue to an extent in the book, that schools are full of multiple systems that are intended to do the same thing. I'll go back to the example again of performance management. When performance management was first introduced in English schools, um, there were very few lesson observations, there were very few learning walks and drop-ins and book scrutinies and student voice and any of that. So when performance management was introduced and you had a one-off lesson observation, that was often the only time that somebody watched you teach. Now, what's happened over the years is we've rightly introduced better systems, whether it's, um, whether it's the kind of coaching models or shorter learning walks or whatever it might be, but we forgot to take out the thing that it had replaced. So the experience of teachers was we knew all the way through the year how people were performing but we were still doing the lesson observation at the end. It didn't pass the, the common sense test. So that was the, the, the key to it really for us was that face-to-face that -face honest conversation. But then the other bit of it is it's got to go beyond quantity. Lots of schools stop at quantity. They get rid of tasks and they say we're done. But it has to move beyond that. It has to go to type of work. Um, because again, there are lots and lots of things that staff are asked to do, that take up time, that are onerous, that aren't about the core function anymore of helping students to do as well as they can possibly do. So we went from quantity to type, and then underpinning all of that is a culture that is about constant review cycles, constant feedback about what's actually happening, what are we doing, and continually testing our, our system. So quantity, type, culture and the kind of three steps that we that we went through Caroline, just come in i think it's, i think one of the nuances that i talk about with our workload and well-being team between making 
the job easy, making it easier for them to do the job, which is really hard. Right? Because teaching is really difficult. Teaching students in a class and ensuring that they're making decent progress and they're understanding what you're teaching and they're making progress in their understanding and, and knowledge is really tricky. Um, but what you've got to do is take away all the barriers, like Johnny said. There's a brilliant line um, in uh, Vivian Robinson's book. I'm a massive fan of Vivian Robinson. Um, her two books, first one was called um, Student-Centered Leadership, and the second one was called Reduce Change to Increase Improvement, which I think is absolutely brilliant, really short, really easy to read. Um, and what, and what, what she says is that um, one of the things that's good about leaders teaching is that they experience what it's like to be in the classroom and what gets in the way of you doing the job. So I remember teaching a couple of years ago in room two, and we'd had a fabulous new screen and stuff put in it. What you couldn't do, because it was such a great fab screen, was ease the screen with the, with the, with the bell work, the starter work, while you took the register. Pain, right? It, was, mm. it cost it cost two grand to put in and two grand to have removed. There was a as a as a as a as a, as a, as a learning aid. Um, but being in there, I could say this is rubbish. Let's get out of that. And and all the industry said, oh, thank goodness you know. Um, it's a good example of why getting on the ground and understanding what the impediments are and the barriers are to teachers doing a good job. Um, it's a really useful thing to do for school leaders. Great. There are some really useful tools and ideas about leadership in the book, particularly around things like succession planning and how to support staff to take the next step in their careers. Obviously, you've got long experiences in leadership yourselves. What What is the difference, as you see it, between being a good teacher and being a good leader? Uh, John, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I, I, um, my instinct to say that is that they're inextricably linked in my vision of what we do. When I read that first book in 2015, um, it was initially going to be called "Why the Head Teacher Must Be the Best Teacher in the School." Pompous and arrogant, like there is there is a seed of there's a grain of truth in that. In that, when you listen to Vivian Robinson talk, and she gets it absolutely right, um, she says what leaders can't afford to do is try and build a sense of trust with their staff. And she, what she means by that is, and she calls it getting getting enough money in the trust bank, um, and then you know, through being chummy and being you know creating kind of being just all, all matey. And then when you have to have a discussion about the work, she calls it, which is about improving the quality of teaching, the teachers suddenly go, oh, where did that come from? Um, and she says, you know, leaders, leaders are, you, you, you gain your trust of your staff by doing the work, not being chummy and building up the trust bank. You gain their trust, you grow their trust by knowing your stuff and they don't trust leaders who don't know what they're talking about um and so from my point of view because we're a single school and we have 50 like 112 teachers 
and we're focusing on quality and teaching and learning. I'm at that. I'm on the forefront, along with you know quite a few others. Um, and I've got some really great people doing work there. Like we had Alex Quigley there for years. Um, he was there as an NQT, and he and I did some great work around the research stuff in the early years. Um, but you've got to know your staff if you're going to have conversations with teachers about the quality of teaching and learning. And they don't trust you if you don't. Um, so that that link between being a good teacher and a good leader in the model that I have, mm. which is this unbelievably traditional model of headship, right? I'm there with the vicar and the doctor in the, in the community as figureheads, you know, going back to um, the Lost Village and Goldsmith and stuff two centuries ago, three centuries ago. Really, really um, traditional stuff. In the end, you don't have to be like that. In the end, I know, I know people like Johnny, who's a great teacher, but has people in his institution running six schools who are in charge of the quality of teaching and learning. Those people need to know their stuff. Whoever's running it needs to know their stuff. So being a good teacher and being a good leader in the model that I have, you have to know your stuff. I know great people. I've grown up in York with people who are now CEOs. Johnny's an example. Um, who may not teach that much anymore, but they facilitate and they, they set up systems which are entirely sympathetic to improving the quality of teaching. So there is a there's a there's a it depends what the model is, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if people aren't um, uh, at, the, at the cutting edge in the classrooms. But whatever model you're using for leading school for leading the quality of teaching and learning, the people who are leading that um, and are leading others in it have to know that stuff. So. In my view, the, the, the two are inextricably linked. And, and Johnny, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's an interesting um, perspective. I tell a story in the book when um, the most recent secondary school to join the trust is, uh, is the Snape School. The Snape School was a good um, school in, in every respect, really. Uh, it was a standalone single academy trust that didn't need to join a map. Um, and it was very much an active choice of the um, the governors there and the head to join us. Um, not long before the conversion happened, um, I went over and did a staff meeting with the head. And I just said a little bit about myself and my background and what I'd done um, before I talked about the trust and, and moving forward. And one of the members of staff came up to me afterwards and she said, you've absolutely put my mind at ease. I was concerned and I did have some worries when you said that you're a history teacher and that you're a qualified teacher, I thought we're going to be okay. It never crossed my mind that some of the, the staff there thought that the CEO might not be a teacher. Now, I think I, I agree with what John said, that in, in lots of trusts, it's, it's much, much more difficult for the CEO to be um, any more that practicing great teacher. But you either need to be, in, if the size of the trust allows, still the, the key person in terms of school improvement and staff development. Um, I've, I've always found it difficult when trusts reach a certain size and the CEO who's a teacher appoints a director of education. Um, because to me, and this is just my, you know, my view, if the CEO isn't the director of education, then what is the CEO... <laughs> doing obviously you reach a certain size where you can't 
do it all yourself. You need a great team around you. But as John said, unless the CEO really understands curriculum, really understands teaching and learning, has a decent understanding of um, of research and evidence, um, does plenty of reading and talks to lots of teachers and gets into lots of lessons, there's absolutely no way that you can appoint the right people around you. You have to have that skill set and that knowledge to fall back on. Um, so I think the, you know, I, I've gone backwards and forwards in my head about at what point do I stop teaching. I was an executive principal, so a head teacher and almost deputy CEO. I was still teaching at that point. Um, and I miss it, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, I don't think the history department or the politics department would let me anywhere near a classroom. Um, <laughs> but much better teachers than me. Um, but, you know, I, I do miss it. But I don't see myself as divorced from leading the quality of teaching, the quality of curriculum in the trust, because I've got to get that right. I've got to know enough to get that right. And I've got to know enough to appoint the right people around me to do the great work that they're doing. Great stuff. And I think, as I say, one of the things that I found um, really, really clear in, in, in how you just describe some of this is the kind of taking taking the step on from teaching to lead and support others and exactly what that that looks like and that in, involves and, and developing curriculum and and, and 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 the sort of the, the roles and experiences that people need to have on that that journey. I think it's a really kind of clear framework for that which I'm sure people will find really useful. Carolyn, can I just can I just say a little bit about that? Yeah. I think succession planning is really interesting and I think it's for years and years I had succession planning at the top of my to-do list and never did anything about it and six years ago I said to the team look biggest, the biggest challenge we have over the next two years is to appoint really good teachers as the, as the recruitment crisis um, gets worse and worse so um, one of my colleagues Penny Holland's husband works um, for Network Rail and we got him to work with us and looked at their um, competency-based um, succession planning um, system. And they had three competencies, the sociability, um, thinking and aspiration, the STA, the STAR um, kind of model that they use. And we took a lot from that. We added resilience. Resilience was within, was within aspiration. And we thought resilience in teaching um, should stand alone as a tip itself it's a, in, at every level from the NQT with a class of 32 who are difficult to manage all the way through to CEOs who've got accountability levels and 15 schools to run and we all need to be really resilient um, and then lastly we added knowledge as well because we had, you had STAR which would have been a great start um, but we added or, or RATS if you read it backwards um, uh, and then we had we added K for knowledge because I think um, that subject knowledge, pedagogic knowledge, and, and if you really want to be a leader, I think you have to have knowledge of what's going on in education. You can't just um, just uh, live in your little 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 bubble and little tunnel and be tunnel vision. I think you do need to have knowledge of what's going on. So we we've used those um, as kind of leadership aptitudes, and we've been really explicit with our colleagues about it. And as a part of the performance performance development process, the add-on is a really open, um, trust, trusting 
conversation about where people want to go in their careers and what their sociability, their thinking, their aspiration, their resilience and their knowledge, where they are on those, on those aptitudes and where they think they might develop them. And then we put a program on completely free um, of a whole range of different things um, that develop those areas. Um, and people love that. that love, you've got a, you know, one or two things you're working on as a school, but stuff they're working on for themselves to develop their leadership qualities has gone down massively well. And what's great about it, because we use, uh, uh, we've developed our own, what's called a nine box model. If you go and have a look in any human resources um, department in any decent organization, um, you'll find nine box models everywhere. Um, what we've done using a nine box model is to be able to map who um, are our flight risks. And what we mean by flight risks are people who Actually, if we don't provide something for them, um, which could interest them and develop them, they're probably going to fly off to another place and get promotion, a bit like Johnny Utley did a few years ago. <laughs> and, and, it, and it allows us to kind of have a good picture of where our staffing is and where we need to invest. And if, if there are no kind of success, you know, obvious successors to key roles, um, then you either have to get one in and that's really difficult at the moment or you have to identify on your staff who you need to grow and give them the opportunity to grow. Um, and it's and doing it systematically rather than just doing it ad hocly has been tremendous and I think it's been part of the reason we've been so targeted and, and able to be fully staffed um, back in Mar back on March the 13th. Indeed. And finally, we're, we're kind of having this conversation in the in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis and obviously lots of, of focus and, and activity around the operational challenges that that schools are facing just now but um, you you end your book imagining a system in in 2030 so uh, let's let's uh, look to the future and and think about what would you what would you like to see then yeah, I think it's been it's been really interesting over the last few weeks. I think the the COVID crisis has thrown into relief what's important, what really matters, and what doesn't. Um, it's really interesting that the the day after the government rightly announced that league tables will be suspended this summer, most schools and most school leaders worked twice as hard as they worked the day before. Um, because we don't need league tables to make us work hard. If I were to sum it up, in 2030, I would like us to be in a position, well, before 2030, but um, where leaders are able to care as much about the school down the road as they do about, as they do about their own school. Um, so going back to one of the first answers the first time I met John, and it still sticks in my, in my head, the difference between celebrating great results for your students because you're genuinely happy for those young people or celebrating results because of it makes the school look good. Um, so the, the, the biggest thing for all, for, for me, would be that we're in a situation where we have the conditions for that. And there's two, there's two, two things that really get in the way right now. The first one is that our accountability system, and we talk about this in the last chapter, is based around a zero-sum game. Tom Sherrington writes really well around this. Without 
going into all sorts of boring, long technicalities. We all know that the way our accountability system works is for one school to do better, another school has to do worse. Mm. And that's the real problem. That really gets in the way of collaboration. If you think about it right now, although most of us don't let this get in the way, it's actually irrational to work with another school to help it get better because you're actually making your own job in your own school more difficult. So a change around those high-stakes accountability measures would be crucial for us to, to move to a genuinely staff-first system. And then the second bit of it, I think, is around the choices that leaders make because we are stuck in that zero-sum game. We are stuck in that accountability system. But there are huge differences between how different leaders and different schools choose to react to that. Everybody has a choice about whether they put an Ofsted banner outside their school. Everybody has a choice about whether they effectively name and shame other schools by saying that they're doing um, better than them. Every leader has a choice about what they're willing to do to achieve league table position. So curriculum choices, off-rolling, um, elective home education, all of those things that are real problems in the system. The 11,000 missing year 11 students last year, the 20 schools that are responsible for 40% of exclusions in the country, all of those things go back to the accountability system, but they are all also choices that leaders and governors have made. So there's two bits to it. We can't just blame the accountability system. We have to look to ourselves and be honest about our behaviour and what we want to do. And the bottom line in all of this is the more leaders who choose to lead in an ethical way, where they care about students in other schools, the easier it becomes for everybody. The more people who choose not to, the more difficult it becomes. And it really is that, that simple um, for me in terms of where we are and where we want to be. Powerful. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've just got in my hand, I've just got the book in my hand, and what we write in the book is, is all about, it's not idealistic nonsense, right? and it's not soft stuff. Um, but if we're going to have young people want to join the profession, um, really, you know, the best young people to join the profession, uh, best graduates, um, to, um, to, to last, to make contribution for years on end, we've got to be better than we are now. Um, we've got to have less contact time, more training. We've got to have less fumbling around for what works, right? There's a real core of what works, and we can build distinctive schools around those cores. Never, you know, and going back to where we are now, less divide and, and more sense of a single cause. And then, you know, as I said four fifty minutes ago, the leadership I'm seeing across this wonderful city in York is designation blind. Mm -hmm. um, we've got stuff that are going on that are futile. Um, some, some of the kind of polar opposite stuff, um, which is just a nonsense, and think clearly about what, what we need to be doing. Um, and I come back, you know, I, I really love I, I do a talk at the moment, Caroline, called um, 25 Years of Hurt, where I talk about how for the first 25 years of my career, I didn't really know what I was doing, if I'm honest. Um, I got by on 
force a character and enthusiasm. I just love seeing things, love working with kids, and they loved it, and we got on all right. But in the last seven years, I've become a much better teacher and a much better leader since my experience has been coupled with um, what the evidence says works or doesn't work. You know, and a thing I've been working on for the last um, six years is a paper called um, Cognitive Apprenticeship by Brown et al., written in 1989. That would have been the second year I was teaching. And if there had been facilities then, and there had been structures then, to put that paper in my hand and say, John, this is what the research says really helps students learn. If I'd had that in 1989 in the second year of teaching, rather than 2013, when Alex Quigley gave it to me, think of all the students I've taught between 1989 and 2013 who could have benefited from that paper and my improved teaching if I just had that structure in place to let that happen. Right? We don't need to be guessing about what works. We can work, we can have a profession rather than um, people guessing around and fumbling around um, to, to, to understand what um, helps young people learn. In the end, if you put staff first, you put training of staff first, put the welfare of staff first, if you put the, the well-being of staff first in every sense, you'll get brilliant tools and brilliant learning and the students will be the ones that benefit most. Great stuff. And any any final remarks from either of you to our listeners? Yeah, the final, final thing to say, Caroline, is we can only do what we can do in whatever context. And that's not enough for someone then fine. You know, um, we can only do what we can do. We have to take we have to be put humanity first. I think it's um is it uh, my my friend and conspirator um, Mary Myatt, what does she say? The children in our schools are humans first, people second, our colleagues are humans first, teachers second. Bring back humanity, put that in the centre of the ring. Thank you very much. Thank you to both of you for giving up time to talk to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. And please tell us what you think about the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at, at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.